We'll stand now for the second reading. Out of respect for God's word, we stand and read Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Luke 18, 18 through 30. As we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. Brothers and sisters, we really believe that these words from the scriptures, that they really are the word of God to you. They are his inerrant and inspired and holy word. Beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come. Follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this life and in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Please be seated. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would open this word, open our hearts so that we will hear this word, not only hear it, but believe it, and that we would be changed because of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, I want to make a point of going back and reminding you what we heard in chapter 1. Right at the beginning of chapter 1, Luke tells us that he is setting out to write an orderly account and to teach us about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, sometimes that can, we can lose sight of that. We can say, well, you know, Luke, we've been listening to you. We've been listening to you for over a year now. And sometimes you don't seem so orderly. But I I just want to begin this sermon by giving you um, an encouragement that Luke is actually more orderly than we think. And sometimes when we're reading through our Bibles, uh, we can lose sight of that because we see him jumping from story to story and topic from topic. Uh, But when we step back and we look at the big picture, 
when we look at how Luke is, is leading us along, we'll start to be able to see the orderliness of his account. What is the orderliness that we've been seeing in the, in the weeks leading up uh, to this sermon? Well, we've seen this orderly march all the way from the north in Galilee down to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and we can barely get uh, a chapter or two through the book of Luke before Luke tells us, hey, guess what? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he is going to suffer, but he's also going to rise again. And don't forget that that's where you're going. But on the way, Luke is also doing another orderly thing. He's leading us to Jerusalem, and while he's doing that, he is hitting us with all these different topics that those who follow Jesus need to hear. What we've been hearing over and over again recently is Luke has been telling us about the kind of people who can enter the kingdom of God. Who can enter the kingdom of God? Who can enter this, um, this great work and this, this great community that God is forming as he takes a broken and fallen and rebellious world and redeems it to now be useful and to shine forth his glory? Who can be part of that great endeavor on God, from God's part? Well, the answer has been shocking over and over again. He showed us persistent widow. He showed us a tax collector bowed down saying, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. And then he showed us last week, little children running around, giggling, crying. He says, look at those children. Not only are children part of the great work I am doing in my kingdom, not only are they part of the community that, uh, that, is, uh, that I'm forming, but they are also models of what it is like to enter my kingdom. Wow. We we talked about why that is. It's because of their helplessness, their dependency, their trust. Well, here, Jesus finishes off this, this deep dive into who can be part of his kingdom with a final example. And it's very interesting because along he comes and he is the exact opposite of the children. In fact, I think we're going to see that's the point. We're asking the question, who can be part of God's kingdom? And along comes the man who has it all, the rich young man. He is indeed rich. That's the, the one thing that's front and center in, in Matthew, Luke, and Mark. That this man is teeming with riches and wealth. Exceedingly rich. But he's also powerful. He is a ruler in Israel. Perhaps he's a member of the Sanhedrin. We have many different hints to suggest that's probably what it is. He's, he's a member of the ruling council. And so think, think about, you know, the senators and vice presidents in our land. I guess there's only one vice president. But think about, think about those, the rulers in our land and... And so this man is rich and he's powerful. And not only that, but he is moral. He cares about being a decent human being and being a good follower of God. Look at how he comes along with this question. What must I do to enter the kingdom of God? He's he's concerned about 
being a moral representative of God. And so you've got the trifecta here, right? Riches, power, morality. He's got the trifecta of accomplishment. And yet, isn't it interesting that this guy comes up to Jesus with a question? Maybe he's heard Jesus teaching about the kingdom of heaven, talking about the kingdom of God and who can enter. And there's just something that, that doesn't sit right with him. There's just something that nags him. So he comes up to Jesus. What must I do to enter the kingdom of God? He's the man who has, has it all. But, you know, maybe you've seen this. Maybe you've met certain people. They seem great people. They, they have everything you'd want that you think that they want. In fact, maybe you're a little bit jealous of them. But then they see the way you live out your faith and they just have this nagging sense that there's something that they need. Well, this, this is what this guy is like. And so you could add to the trifecta, rich, powerful, and moral. He seems to be humble too. What does this guy lack? Well, Jesus is going to take us there and he's going to show us, he's going to teach us about ourselves in the process He's going to do that first by, by showing us this challenging conversation and then comforting conclusion. So we're going to look at the, the, the challenging conversation that unfolds and then the comforting con- conclusion that we hear by the end of this passage. Well, let's look at the, the challenge that Jesus lays upon this man, the man who has it all. What challenge can't he stand up to? What does he really lack? Well, Jesus challenges him because he asks this question, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And he addresses Jesus by saying, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus latches on to that phrase, good teacher. That's the first way he challenges him. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And we hear that and we say, wow, that sounds like, kind of uncomfortable to me because isn't Jesus God? Isn't he the, the fullness of deity come dwelling bodily, as Colossians says? Well, obviously, yes. Jesus is the great provider, the great shepherd of the sheep. We've already seen that. And so he is perfectly good. But here, he's doing something very specific as he challenges this rich young man. Jesus is focusing in on this man's worldview. And he's entering his perspective, his worldview, and he says, let's start with that that word that you used. That word that you just threw out like it was nothing. Good. Why do you call me good? What does good really mean? You know, we we use that phrase all the time ourselves. And, you know, there's a very ordinary ordinary and normal way to do this. We, We say... You know, we, we, we talk about someone being, oh, he's, he's a good guy. He's a good friend. But when you're talking about entering the kingdom of God, the God who alone is perfectly good, what is human goodness in that light? What does good really mean if God is holy? Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Or Matthew 6 tells us that God, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so when this man comes throwing out the word good in connection with entering the kingdom of God like it's nothing, Jesus says, well, wait just a minute. Let's just start there. 
Reflect on what you're really asking. Reflect on what you're really saying. Rich young man, when you stand before God, the Holy One of Israel, with all his purity, what does good mean in that context? And Jesus is asking, he's laying this subtle challenge upon this man because he's driving at something. He's driving at something. We're going to get there. He's challenging this man. Well, then he follows this up with another challenge that piggybacks right on top of that. Consider true goodness. And by the way, keep the commandments. How, how have you kept the commandments, rich young man? Well, we see in verse 19 that Jesus lays this all out. He hands him a handful of, of commandments from the second table of the law. You know, you've got the Ten Commandments and you can divide them one to four and five through ten. And um, the way that you divide that is say that one through four are specifically related to who God is and, and our relationship and what we owe him. But then five through ten are all about how we then turn and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so Jesus lays that second table of the law right on, right on him. And what does he say? In verse 19. Verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And, and listen to what this, this man says. That's all, Jesus? Come on. All those I have kept from my youth. Since my bar mitzvah, since I was 12 years old, I was taught those commandments. And look, no one who knows me could find any fault. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen. I haven't murdered. And so you almost sense a little bit of disappointment in this guy's voice, right? As Jesus lays these commandments on him. It's like he says, there's still something missing. That's, that's not it. That's not it. I kept those. But let's think about this for a minute. Let's think about his answer because it actually reflects a lot of how our culture thinks about the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. You know, when I, um, I've been to the Boardwalk Chapel before, it's a, a ministry in New Jersey of the OPC which seeks to speak to people on the boardwalk as they're, as they're walking by and, um, and to talk to them about Jesus to ask them hard questions. Some of the hard questions Jesus has been asking, like, what is goodness really about? And have you kept the Ten Commandments? And so when we ask them, have you kept the Ten Commandments? They say, well, pretty much, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I can't think of a time I've ever murdered. Um, you know, stealing, yeah. I mean, I remember taking some candy from a store one time, but, you know, that's the kind of thing that God doesn't, isn't too concerned about. What about lying? Yeah, a white lie here or there, but I haven't told a lie that would just, you know, compromise someone's entire life. I haven't done the, the big stuff. Haven't murdered anyone. Haven't stolen anything big. Haven't told anyone huge lies. And so, so here comes, um, th th this is what we oftentimes experience when we talk to people. A stunted view of God's law and its demands. And I think that's what we see with our world around us and with this rich young man. Because think about this. We've been studying this in Sunday school. When we come to the Ten Commandments, we're tempted 
to water them down and make them more simple than they actually are. But what do we see as we see the whole scriptures reflect upon the Ten Commandments, especially as Jesus talks about them in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, first of all, we see that for every positive command, there is a negative command implied. Or for every negative command, there's a positive command implied. Don't murder. What does that mean? It means don't take someone's life, but also be diligent in preserving the lives of others. Look out for their lives as much as you look out for yourself. What about, you know, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It doesn't just mean don't lie. It means uphold the truth. Uphold the dignity of your neighbor. But then it gets even deeper than that. You're saying, okay, well, that's a little bit harder. I'm not sure I've kept all that. Well, then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount comes and says, the, the Ten Commandments are not just about negative and positive commands. They're also about living out God's law in your heart. So when the Bible says, when the Ten Commandments say, do not murder, Jesus says, you know, you have broken that command if you look at your brother and you hate him in your heart. So kids, every time you're angry with your brother and sister for you know, playing with a toy that's yours or for not including you in, 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 in a game or something like that, or anytime you see them um, you're doing something that just makes you really angry, Jesus says, you know what you've done in your heart? You've broken that commandment, do not murder. Now that, that's hard. What about when Jesus says, don't covet, don't be, don't be jealous of something someone else says. Jesus, you know, as soon, kids, as you have been jealous of your sibling or, or someone or a friend, as soon as that jealousy takes over your heart and you say, I want what they have, Jesus says, you've broken the Ten Commandments. And guess what? James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So the Ten Commandments are like chains that you are holding onto and beneath you is like, I guess you could say an alligator pit. And you got it really, those, those chains have to hold tight. That's what God's law is like. It's like a mirror. And if you, if, you, know, if you happen to bump the mirror and, and uh, leave a big dent in one part of it, you've broken the whole thing. No one's going to buy that at a thrift shop from you. The mirror is broken. And so, so why am I going to such extent to say this? I, I want you to see that this rich young man comes to God's law with this stunted view of goodness, with this stunted view of the commandments. Maybe we need to hear that today because maybe we are tempted to say, I have kept all these from my youth. Well, still, the challenges haven't set into this young man's heart, but that all changes with challenge number three, the ultimate test. You know, Jesus is a genius when it comes to test. Jesus is like a surgeon of the heart who knows just how to work his way in and touch the places that we, we don't even see. And this rich young man doesn't see it until he hears it from Jesus. This is what Jesus says. One thing you still lack. He says, okay, here it comes. What is it? Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and follow me. Upon hearing those words, the rich young man, his heart sinks because Jesus has just told him 
The one thing he could never do. The one thing that he could, he was just completely unprepared to give up. Because who is he? He's the rich young man. Rich is like his first name. We don't even know anything else about him, but we know he's rich because that is the core of his identity. You see what Jesus is doing. He's exposing this man's inability to keep the law. That's the first thing he does. As soon as the man hears that command from Jesus, give up your possessions. And as soon as his heart says no, and it grabs the possessions and it holds on to them, what's he doing? He's breaking commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus has just exposed what, who his true master is. What's his true master? Money, wealth, the things that define his identity. And Jesus has just exposed how far he's fallen short of God's law. He can't even get past the first commandment, right? He's broken number one. He doesn't love God with all his heart. Maybe that's why Jesus starts with the second table of law and then comes to the first. He's working his way. He's, he's showing this guy how confident he really is. But then he pulls that right out from under the rug. And finally, Jesus is exposing what this guy really lacks. What, is, what does he really lack when it comes down to it? He lacks trust. He lacks neediness. He lacks, lacks desperation before God. Remember how we started off this sermon by noting how Luke has been showing us actually contrasts. We see the Pharisee and the tax collector. We see the children, and now we see the rich young ruler. Here's the man who has it all, except in having it all, he's lost the true, the true thing that really matters. A, a real need for God. A real sense of his desperation and need. And so he approaches Jesus with, you know, Christianity is just something to him that he just adds to his life. So he shows up to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? And what's he thinking? He says, I've got everything I really want, except there's something I feel that you can offer me. Could you just tack that on? You know, could I, could I now become the rich young man who knows Jesus? You know, the successful man who knows Jesus? And Jesus says, no. Because the gospel isn't something you add to your life. Christianity isn't something you tack onto your life. It's like a bomb that goes off and it destroys everything that you love. It destroys everything you, you held dear. And then guess what? It tells you to restart. That's what Christianity does. It sweeps away everything you're holding on to and it says, you can't be the rich young man who loves Jesus. You just have to be the man who loves Jesus first and foremost. You have to, your, your identity gets blown to smithereens and then Jesus says, and then, then, We'll start from scratch. But this man, that's the one thing he's not willing to do. He's holding on to his wealth. He's holding on to his possessions. And so he walks away sad. You know, you know what the Gospel of Mark says? That Jesus looked at that man as he walked away sad and dejected. Mark says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. Isn't that powerful? 
Jesus looks at this man as he holds on to his possession, even as he refuses to let go of them. And he says, I love that man. Now that's how Jesus looks at our world and how he looks at us as we hold on to the things that we seek to fulfill our lives. And this challenge meets us. The love of Jesus meets us. That's why this text is given to us. How are you like this rich young ruler? How do you need to hear his message today? Let's start with that. What does Jesus demand of you that you have to give up, that you have to let go of, be willing to relinquish as you seek to follow him? Now, is Jesus saying that all of us have to give up our wealth and give it to the poor, every dime of it, every penny, right now, I don't think so. Because I think when we look at the rest of the scriptures, what we're seeing is that Jesus is is calling us to good stewardship with our money. And in this particular passage, Jesus is honing in on that one thing that this man uses to define himself. For him, that's wealth. For him, that's possessions. What is it for you? What's that thing that you struggle to let go of? What are the idols of your heart? Maybe it's a different kind of achievement than the rich young ruler. Maybe it's, maybe it's other kind of riches than wealth. How about your talents? You know, do you like to be known as, you know, the, the, the guy who plays violin really well? And everyone, everyone knows that. Do you like to be known as, you know, the, 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 the mom who outshines other moms because of her dedication? Do you like to be known as... You know, the successful businessman, the law-keeping citizen, successful in your job. What is it that you just hold on to and say, yeah, if Jesus took that away from me, if he asked me to relinquish that, my identity would be in for a huge spin and I'd be, I'd be grasping around and I don't know that I could let go of that if Jesus asked me to. What is that for you? Well, don't move too, past, too, uh, too easily past the fact that it could be wealth or possessions. Because guess what? We live in the richest um, society that, uh, that this world presently knows, I believe. Um, I, think I'm, I think I'm true. It's, it's one of the richest. Don't miss the focus on wealth in this passage. If your first reaction to this text is, Ooh, thank you, Lord that you're asking me to give up other stuff and not wealth like this guy, then maybe your lifestyle, your wealthy lifestyle, is something that Jesus is pressing in on and saying, yeah, that's an idol. Yeah, that's, that's an identity shaper. And you need to let go of that. You need to let go so the money falls, or, or, you know, falls loosely from your hands and then follow me. Grab a hold of Jesus. That's the picture that this man is called to do, and he can't do it. Jesus says, it is hard for people with possessions. It is hard for people who are blessed with with great talent. It is hard for people who achieve great things in this life to enter the kingdom. In fact, harder than a camel to enter the eye of the needle. Now, maybe you've heard um, a certain interpretation of this camel entering through the eye of a needle. You'll 
run into this in certain commentaries. And it's basically this, that you know, there was a sort of gate in Jerusalem at the time. And uh, for a, it was very tight. And so for travelers to get through with a camel, the camel had to get down and get on all fours and kind of creep through. And you had to help it do that. And she said, oh, it's really hard, really hard for a rich person to get through. It's like a camel entering through that gate. That's not what's happening here. Because notice, that kind of defeats the entire point of the passage. What is Jesus saying? It's impossible. You can't get a rich person who loves their wealth into the kingdom. It's impossible. You can't get the Empire State Building into your room, can you? (laughs) Kids, can you get an elephant through a drinking straw? No. Jesus is saying that's the same thing. Take the largest mammal you guys know in your day, the camel. You see him all the time walking around in the desert and get him through the eye of the needle, one of the tiniest openings that you can find in your household. That's what it's like to get into the kingdom. Remember what he told us way back in, I forget where it was, chapter 12 maybe. I forget. Um, It's a narrow entrance into the kingdom. What are the things that you're holding on to that you, you come up to enter into the kingdom and boom, can't get through because you're holding it. It's like a big wooden beam. Boom, you can't get through that door. Jesus says, you gotta let go of it. You gotta let go of it. Peter says, who then can be saved? Jesus, this sounds impossible. Jesus, you've taken the epitome of, uh, you're the poster child for Jewish morality. You've taken this overachiever, perfect in high school attendance, on the honor roll, on the honor roll, skillful at his craft, you know, know, a celebrity in the eyes of the people, and you've taken him, you've held him up to us, and you've said, he can't do it. And that scares Peter. And it scares the other disciples. Because if he can't do it, how can we? If the rich young man can't get into the kingdom, then how can you? That should, that should scare you at first. Because as you're looking, you're saying, wow, I don't think I'm quite like him. I don't think I can outdo him. If it's impossible for him, then how can anyone get into the kingdom? And here's where the comforting conclusion meets you this morning. Jesus says, chapter 18, verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus come, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, in the beginning of the chapter, uh, in the beginning of John, Jesus says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, well, that sounds impossible. It is. But guess who can give life from the dead? Guess who can take an, an adult with all their self-confidence and all their self-reliance and make them like a dependent child? God can do that. And he's done it time after time and again in the gospel of Luke. And guess, guess who he's going to do it with? Guess how we know that God can do this with you and me and any sinner? Look ahead to chapter 19 of Luke. 
Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And guess what's going to happen to Zacchaeus? Spoiler alert. He enters the kingdom. Here's what you need to hear this morning. With God, all things are possible. God can take you and get you through the eye of the needle. God can, can take uh, those of us who are addicted to our wealth and can free us from that addiction. God can take performance-driven Pharisees and free us from our self-reliance. And he does that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 3-5 says this, For God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Friends, you need to hear this this morning, that only God can free you from what keeps you from coming into the kingdom. And if you have looked to Christ and if you have embraced him, if you have embraced him as that one who has perfectly kept the Ten Commandments in your place, who has freed you from that, that broken mirror of the law, if he has given you the gift of his perfect righteousness, then now you come to every day, God calling you to rely on him and to walk by him who does what is impossible through Jesus Christ. And guess what? Then God restores everything that you let go of but gives it to you in a way that is far better. That's what he says to to Peter at the end of this passage. He says this. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in, in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can take everything that you let go of, everything that you relinquish your hold on, your achievements, your wealth, all those things, all those ways that you would live for your own glory? And he takes it and he says, I'm going to give you better than you ever imagined. Starting now and into eternity. We better believe it because that's the beautiful promise of this passage. Let's go to God in prayer.